Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 21. We're just going to dive right into the text this morning. Luke, our author, says that when these things were accomplished, Paul, purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Now we've noted before that we're in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey, which after a quick pass through Galatia and Pergia, two different regions, Paul has singularly focused an extended season of ministry here in the city of Ephesus. More time Paul spent in Ephesus than any other city uh, in all of his missionary journeys. For three years, Paul invested his heart and his soul and the development of this Ephesian ministry, the Ephesian church, teaching there at the school of Tyrannius. Now, though you could never at any point question Paul's heart, his love, his admiration for these people, I think it's in some regards why he stays there as long as he did. He had an affinity for these people, a love for these people, an admiration for these people. Just read his letter to the Ephesians and you'll get some of Paul's heart and perspective of the things happening here in Ephesus. But our text is clear that after three years, Paul is now sensing a prompting of the Holy Spirit that it's time to maybe move onward into his journey. Now, while the apostle had clear goals he intended to accomplish while in Ephesus, and we'll discuss these goals in our next study. Once we're told, quote, these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit to revisit Macedonia. And in Macedonia, there were the cities of Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. He also wants to work his way through Achaia, that being Corinth, before then selling to Jerusalem, where he had focused on traveling to Rome, his next destination. So we're given here in this moment kind of an outline for what Paul's heart intends to do. Now we'll see that it doesn't exactly work out this way, but up front, this is what his plan looks like. Work his way back through these regions, get to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, he's going to make his way to Rome. Now as Paul prepares his departure to leave Ephesus, wrapping up some of his affairs, Luke tells us he sends ahead Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia. So he's going to catch a boat, go up to Philippi. But we're told, verse 23, as Timothy and Erastus leave, as Paul's wrapping up his affairs, at that time, there arose a great commotion in Ephesus about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So he called the, the, the workers of a similar occupation together, and he said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple 
of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, these other craftsmen were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. According to our text, our antagonist, Demetrius, was a silversmith probably kind of in charge of a trade association of other silversmiths who made and sold shrines of Diana. This was big business. And Ephesus was the temple of Diana. They made a great living on making these trinkets and selling them to people that were traveling, making the pilgrimage to worship this Greek God. It would now seem though, after three years of Paul's ministry, not just in in Ephesus, but extending out into the surrounding region, that their prophets, the prophets of this trade union, had taken a hit. The market had crashed. It had bottomed out. Their money was reaching dangerously low levels. They had a lot of supply, but the demand had waned. And as he evaluated the situation, Demetrius attributes two sources behind the financial crisis. We're told first, there arose a great commotion about what? About the way. And secondly, that Paul had persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. As a result of preaching and teaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus, a city, by the way, filled with immorality, worship to the goddess Diana, incorporated temple prostitutes. The city itself was mired in the occult. It was a dark place to minister. And yet by the preaching of God's word and the power of God working through Paul, there now existed within Ephesus, a clear and undeniable divide within society. A group of people there in this city had emerged who were rebels. They defied the status quo. They broke from the norm. They were living contrary to the rest of the culture. Even if you didn't know the particulars or what was it about these people, we're told that there was simply a way about them that made them different from everyone else. In a sense, the way that they lived their lives was atypical to the normal Ephesian. And note the difference between those of the way and the rest of the culture, it was not a difference that was superficial. It wasn't like, oh, we're different because instead of having a Sprite t-shirt, we take the Sprite logo and make it spirit. It wasn't like they were different in a superficial way, like, yeah, the world listens to all of this music, but we have our own music. Or the world has their the Ephesian movies, but we have our own Christian. Oh, you have your little leagues, but we have our own. It wasn't like we're making a difference between us because we're taking everything you're doing and just making our own versions of it. No, what's happening here is a difference, a divide, a separation that was real and authentic. Now keep in mind, Christianity is more than a set of theological ideas. It's more than a set of moral principles or philosophical beliefs. At its very core, Christianity is fundamentally the way, the truth, and the life. 
It's about a person named Jesus. Christianity is all about an encounter with Jesus that produces a way of living that's diametrically opposed to both the carnal tendencies of this world, you know, living for the eternal versus the temporary, seeking to please God rather than myself. Following Jesus, it's opposed to the carnal tendencies of the world and the pious proclivities of the religious. Following Jesus is much different than following religion. Following Jesus, it's about being made right with God versus becoming right with God through my efforts and my energies and my best attempts. Demetrius's argument claimed that as a direct result of what God was doing through this group of people, quote, this trade of ours is in danger of falling into disrepute. The church there in Ephesus had such an impact The people who made money worshiping this false god, their livelihoods were in danger. But notice that Demetrius, in addition to attributing the cause to the way, he continues by pointing out that this present trend, if it was allowed to continue unchecked, the temple itself of the great goddess of Diana might be despised, her magnificence destroyed. You know, to his credit, Demetrius his analysis was spot on. Because of the preaching of the gospel and the countless lives that were being transformed here in Ephesus, the demand for what these men were peddling was shrinking. Their customer base were no longer interested in their product. So, verse 29, the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius, and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to Paul pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some, therefore, cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused. (laughs) Most of them did not even know why they had come together. So as a result of Demetrius stirring up the crowd, we're told that the whole crowd was filled with confusion. The whole city is filled with confusion. So they seize Paul's traveling companions. They rush into the theater. Now, we had mentioned at the onset of our our examination of Paul's time in Ephesus that Ephesus boasted one of the largest theaters in the world. It held up to 25,000 people, the ruins you can see today. So 25,000 people rush into this theater with one accord. The scene is so chaotic. Luke says some cried one thing, some cried another. Most of the people had no clue what was going on other than they were having a good time. There was a reason to be mad about something. This was total mob think, mob mentality. The scene is undoubtedly dangerous. But look at Paul. I love Paul's reaction. Paul incredibly wanted to go in to the people. You see, while most of us would say, oh, I'm gonna stay away from the theater. They're stirred up. This is not where I should venture into. Paul looks at 25,000 people, doesn't care that they're angry and they're upset and they're riled, but he sees it, 
wow, this is a wonderful opportunity. I mean, 25,000 people gathered together. They're upset with me. That might give me a platform to go in and share with them the good news of the gospel. However, I'm glad that, that, that Paul had friends that kind of talked him off of, of like crazy plans like that. Because we're told that the disciples wouldn't allow him. Like the tense indicates that they like had to physically restrict Paul from doing such a dumb thing. Like, dude, not over my dead body. I love you. I, I understand your heart. I know you want to preach the gospel, but this is a suicide mission. Like this is not going to work. So they're holding him back. Word gets to like some of the officials that Paul's wanting to go in. So we're told that some of the officials of Asia, who were Paul's friends, also pleaded that he wouldn't venture into the theater. So you have this mob in the theater, upset, crazy, they don't know what's going on. You have Paul being physically restrained, wanting to go in to preach the gospel. Things are out of control. Verse 33, so they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Those are good friends. So Alexander motioned with his hand, and he wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Recognizing how dicey the situation was, the Jews, we're told the Jews, that's our context. They want to do something shrewd from their perspective is important. Now, now note, at this point still, within society at large, there was a very subtle difference between Christianity and Judaism because most of the early Christians were Jews. Most of their leadership was Jewish because Paul was a Jew himself. A lot of times, Christianity and Judaism kind of ended up getting lumped together. So you have this mob of 25,000 people really upset that their livelihood is being impacted, not by the synagogue, but by these Christians, those of the way. So hoping and, and intending to differentiate themselves from these crazy Jesus followers, the Jews push out Alexander. Now his whole plan here is to distance the Jewish community from Christianity. Now, this man, Alexander, he was not a believer. And it would seem that he kind of became the arch enemy of Paul and this church in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Paul writing to Timothy, who at the time is pastoring this church, Paul writes, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. And then I love it. He says, may the Lord repay him according to his works. You must be a, beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So this guy, Alexander, he's not stepping forward with good intentions. He's just wanting to separate the Jewish community from the church. And not only did his attempt fall flat, but it would seem that it just only served to stir up the hornet's nest even more. With one voice, this mob, for two hours, imagine, for two hours, they're crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. At some point, they get the wave, you know, going around the stadium. No one really knows why they're there. They're all amped up. 
You've got vendors going up and down. Get your peanuts, get your hot dogs, get your ice cold beer. You know, that's the scene, what's happening. What's happening? What's going to be the attraction? Why are we even here? What's going on? But I love this chant. I like it. We're rooting. So verse 35, the city clerk. So he waits two hours. Let's just go on. Two hours. Then the city clerk enters and he quiets the crowd. And then he says, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here, speaking of Paul's traveling companions, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your gods. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Understand the city clerk kind of operated like a local mayor for the city of of Ephesus. And while we're not given his name, I'd like to point out that the way he handles this really explosive situation was brilliant. As a matter of fact, It's not too outlandish to state that the situation the city clerk had to handle with this unruly Ephesian mob is very similar to what many parents face dealing with a temperamental three-year-old or even an emotionally volatile 13-year-old. There is a lot we can learn by looking at the way this city clerk handled such an explosive situation. First, did you notice that this man's patient? Like he exudes incredible patience. Before he gets up in front of them, before he addresses the crowd, before he deals with it at all, the city clerk just kind of patiently gave the mob time to blow off steam. It's kind of like a controlled burn. It's been lit, it's been ignited, they're going, I'm just gonna let it burn out first before I do anything. They're emotional, they're worked up, they're out of control. Many of them don't even know why. Sounds like some of our children. And wisely, he just understood that before any type of reasonable argument or productive conversation was possible, the people had to calm down. You know, you can't reason with a three-year-old on an emotional burn. You gotta let it just burn out. You gotta be patient. Let the tantrum subside before you try to address anything. Because as you know, if they're all worked up, a lot of times they don't know why, any type of reasonable adult conversation is impossible. If it's a three-year-old or a 14-year-old girl, same dynamic. This is why instead of attempting a dialogue destined for failure. The city clerk simply waited 
till the temper tantrum had subsided before engaging in conversation. But then notice when he gets the opportunity to speak, so about two hours, they finally burned out. What happens? We see that he diffuses things. Now, before he gets to the issue that created the initial outburst, the clerk goes to great lengths to connect and relate with his audience in order to diffuse the emotional component and build a bridge to reason. Look at what he says. He says, what man? What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Now, it's important to understand that his first words are not dismissive of their feelings. It's not, he's not dismissive of their emotion. Now, while unfounded, their emotional reaction was real, which explains why the clerk seeks to be understanding. He doesn't call them crazy people. You're a three-year-old monster. No, there's a moment of relatability, a moment of connecting, a moment of understanding. So why did you get all worked up to begin with? That This doesn't make sense. Why are you taking things so personally? Let me know why. I, your, feeling, your feelings are unfounded, but they're real. So I wanna connect with that first. And then, so he's patient, he diffuses, now he addresses, right? Once it's clear the emotional components of the outburst have been appeased, it's only then that the clerk proceeds to address the facts of the case. So he lets them burn out. He takes a moment. He connects. Okay, I understand why you got bent out of shape here. I, I get that. You didn't get your way. I didn't give you a piece of candy. I get it. I would be upset if I were 3-2 and I didn't get a piece of candy. I sympathize with you. But now let's, let's, because we've connected, now let's address the underlying issue. The clerk, he says, you ought to be quiet. Be quiet. And do nothing rashly. Settle down. For you have brought these men here who are not robbers of temples or blasphemers of your gods, and pointing out that their reaction had been disproportionate to what had actually taken place, the clerk is letting them know that this response, this emotional response was rather inappropriate. You know, Paul, if you, if you read back through, through the chapter, he never once attacked Diana. That was not correct. Paul was not directly out to hurt them. He wasn't intentionally trying to throw their livelihoods into peril. It's as though the clerk kind of, kind of steps in and he says, you know, you're overreacting and you're taking this all too personally. What stirred you up is not even based in reality. I understand that your emotions are real, but let's look at what caused them because how you've reacted and what triggered it, that's nuts. Like that doesn't connect. And then he advises in order to ensure that similar outbursts are avoided in the future, the city clerk advises the offended party as to the appropriate way to voice their complaint in the future. It's as though your reaction here is totally disproportionate to what's going on. Let's just get that out. This is not acceptable. So in the future, 
now that we're processing things rationally. In the future, let me tell you how you can handle it. He says, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. Take it to the courts. They're pro-councils. Let them bring charges with one another. Now that everyone's processing things reasonably, the clerk exhorts them to reason in future situations. His point was that in Ephesus, there were courts designed to arbitrate such matters with all the uproar and fanfare. It's as though he's saying, I'm not dismissing the way you feel, but there is a right way and a wrong way to deal with these type of situations. Finally, the city clerk gives them a warning. He says that as kind of like the only adult in the room, he warns them as to the unintended consequences of what would come of future outbursts that are similar. He lets them know that with actions, there are consequences. He says, if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be in the lawful assembly for you're in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give an account of this disorderly gathering. In Rome, they allowed cities a certain level of autonomy, of self-governance, but they did not look too kindly on riots like this one. Ephesus had a lot of privileges that they enjoyed that such a riot would cause them to lose. It's as though the clerk is reminding them that this outburst in the future might very well bring about a harsher consequence than even the original thing they were upset about. They were worried about having their livelihoods thrown into question. Their reaction would have yielded a worse consequence than just having your livelihoods impacted. Rome and Roman soldiers would come into the city and impose order, not what anyone wanted. Now, before we transition away from Paul's time in Ephesus, there is an overarching idea about Paul's time in Ephesus that we need to discuss in response to several seismic shifts that have been taking place in America over the last 50 years, Christian leaders have struggled to find a way to address a culture that is becoming more and more secular. Sadly, despite the best efforts of organizations like the Christian Coalition, the evangelical attempt to curtail the growing influence of progressivism in America through political means has been largely unsuccessful. One might even say that with the president, the presidency being occupied for 16 of 24 years by cultural liberals, the quote, culture war has been categorically lost. Like it's kind of over. All the trends go the wrong way. Now, I know what I'm about to say might, might be controversial. I ask that you just give me a moment to explain what I'm gonna say. Hear me out. So America's culture has been becoming more secular. We have turned to politics to try to adjust that, to address that, but you, and that's failed. I am glad that the evangelical approach to cultural decay through political action has failed. I'm glad it's failed. 
because it was not only unbiblical, it was ultimately dangerous, and in the end proved to be nothing but a distraction away from the only biblical model that works. Let me explain. By first explaining why the approach of using politics to influence society always fails and why it's ultimately a dangerous idea in the first place. In a representative government, the state, and therefore the law, is designed to simply be the reflection of the majority will of society. Representation. Until recently, since America's core belief structures concerning social matters were largely Christian, our laws were mostly consistent with Christian principles. And thus the church kind of stayed out of politics. However, over the last few decades, this has all changed. Because our laws have shifted noticeably away from biblical principles, many well-intentioned but misguided Christians, unsure how to handle this move away from Christian values, have engaged in a political battle, hoping to save the moral fabric of the good old U.S. of A. How can we save and restore America back to traditional values? What they failed to recognize And what doomed the effort from the beginning is that they were fighting to maintain laws that simply no longer reflected American society and values. Most people don't want to hear it. But Christianity is no longer the largest determiner of American values. Like, look at the incredible divide. I'm not going to go through all the stats. You can do it on your own. But look at those who profess to be Catholic but do not support the Catholic position on abortion or even contraception. There's a divide. There's a separation. Beyond this, according to the 2014 Pew Research poll, when it comes to gay marriage, 54% of Americans support it, while only 34% oppose. Now, while I'm not advocating that Christians shouldn't be represented politically or even be political. The problem with this reaction, seeing politics as the solution to cultural decay is threefold. First, law. Law has never changed a heart and is fundamentally powerless to change society. Law reflects society. Law does not dictate society. In actuality, the Bible teaches that the law, that the law only breeds greater rebellion in the heart of man. So the law has never changed a heart. Secondly, a political approach that emphasizes the importance of law only serves to undercut the powerful message of grace. Like, do you realize the one thing that we have to sell that the world doesn't already have is grace, not law? You know the consequence of placing such an emphasis of law from our Christian perspective is that polls show that Christians today are known more by what they're against than what they're actually for? That's sad. Thirdly, the the only political structures that attempt to influence the will of society 
contrary to the will of that society are known as being totalitarian. Like we should, we should take a lesson from history. Now, th- though the idea of separation of church and state was introduced by our founding fathers to protect the church from the intrusions of the state and not the other way around, it is a matter of historical fact that any time in history when the church has tried to use the state to influence the cultural directions of society, the result have been tragic. Ever heard of the Dark Ages? The state and the church should be separated because when the church starts to meddle in the state, things become bad. You know, one of the unintended consequences of this political approach to cultural decay is that churches who bought into this model did so at the expense of the biblical one. The, the problem is that, is that it wasn't a, a both and. Like we could, we could use politics as a tool. It became the tool. Copious amounts of time, energy, and resources. And recent years have been spent by the church on political advocacy, promoting like-minded candidates, lobbying Congress, influencing the courts, getting out the vote, all of which are noble. But we have done these things without ever stepping back to evaluate the effectiveness of that approach. Sadly, the only notable results of two decades of trying to merge the church with politics has been that evangelicals alienated an entire generation of millennials who, by the way, don't like politics, brand Jesus as being a Republican. It's true. Fail to influence society or the culture direction in any measurable way. There is no tangible result of 20 years of the church seeing politics as the way to influence culture. The last 20 years, things have moved dramatically the wrong direction. If only we had modeled Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Notice, while in Ephesus, Paul, like like never once do we have a record of Paul preaching against the moral ills associated with the grotesque worship of Diana. This past week, I had the opportunity to go to the Masters. And seriously, right there on Washington Avenue, right right across the street from the gate because it's public property, you had those guys that are out there with their signs telling people they were going to hell with megaphones. Like, I'm a Christian, and I was embarrassed and felt awkward. Like, Paul never did that. Paul was not outside of the temple of Diana picketing the temple prostitution. Like he had things he could have stood up for. Paul in Ephesus, please understand this. He never goes political. Instead of preaching against vice or advocating for reforms in Ephesus, what did Paul do? What was the only thing Paul did? Paul showed up and from day one, he preached Jesus. He didn't preach against anything. He didn't preach for advocacy. He just preached a person. He preached Jesus. And don't overlook, friend, the importance of this approach. Because Paul was pro-Jesus, 
as opposed to being anti-Diana, he never alienated the audience he had come to reach. As people listened to him speak of Jesus, on their own, what happened? They came to see Diana as being nothing more than a worthless idol. And why did they reach this conclusion on their own? Because they encountered the true and living God. Paul just gave a substitute that was real. Isn't it true? The easiest way to identify a fake is by comparing it, contrasting it with the authentic. Let me give you an example. You know, the easiest way to convince someone that Taco Bell is pitiful Mexican food is not by spending all of your time, energy, and effort railing against Taco Bell. If you want to communicate to someone how bad Taco Bell really is, the solution is to just take them to Chipotle. Ah, but one taste of the glories of heaven will eliminate any desire for the ills of earth. Amen? Amen. Not only is this the most effective evangelical strategy, just presenting what's authentic versus railing against what's fake, it's the only strategy that actually works. Think of it like this. If Taco Bell was your only exposure to Mexican food, you love Taco Bell. And even right now you're sitting there thinking, I'm gonna get up and leave. Like you just called it pitiful Mexican food. And I think it's awesome. Like if you're in that moment, if you're in that place, if Taco Bell is your only exposure, you know, you, you lack even the context to imagine that there's something better. As a matter of fact, you'll, you'll take, if I railed against Taco, you'd take it personally. You'd shut me off. You'd turn off your ears. You'd call me a Taco Bell bigot. Speaking hate of Taco Bell. You love it. It's what you know. It's all you know. How dare you? This is why it's so important that we, who are in the know, that know the lie this world is peddling is empty, that there is a glorious alternative. It's why it's so important we carry the gospel into the world because the world doesn't know something else is there. We have to take what's authentic into the world that's been sold on a fake. And we shouldn't wait around for the world to figure it out. They don't even know they're missing out. You know, aside from the distraction of political games, the messaging of the church in recent years has proven ineffective because we have forgotten this core idea. How do we reach the lost? You know, that's why we're here. We're here to be salt and to be light. Let me ask, do we reach the lost by debating whether or not a person is born lost? or railing against the depravity of their lostness, or whether they should have the right to marry other people that are equally lost? Do we, do we reach the lost by picketing their lost parades, shunning their lost communities, or refusing to allow that group of lost people 
from attending our churches? Do we reach the lost by requiring the lost to first be a different kind of lost before we'll befriend them? Or at least be less lost before we demonstrate kindness? No, no, and again, I say no. If you want to reach the lost, emulate Paul and preach Jesus. For the only meaningful remedy for the lost is to first be found. Nothing else matters. Please understand, the only thing that can save this world is the very thing that saved you. Jesus. The only thing that can redeem this culture that is mired in decay, the only way we can reach this culture to see it redeemed is to point them to the thing that redeemed you, Jesus. The only thing that can transform a human being is the very thing that transformed you. Our only hope personally But the only hope for our country, our culture, our society, our neighbors, and our friends, the only hope that the lost has is to be found in Jesus. Demetrius' accusation is awesome. The fundamentals of Ephesian society were changing. But they were changing, why? Because the hearts of the people in Ephesus were changing. America could use a dose of that. Social transformation is and will always be the unintended consequence of individual lives being transformed by the preaching of Jesus who then go into the world and live an authentic life. Paul came. For three years, he preached Christ. All he did His emphasis is he presented the world around him something real, something genuine, something authentic. He just gave them an alternative. And you know, once people got a taste, there was nothing that Diana would ever be able to afford that would compare You know, Ephesus, because of the preaching of the gospel and the transforming of lives, the lives of people who lived as salt and light, who who were witnesses, not by what they said, but by how they lived. You know, you don't hear light or salt. You see it and you experience it. Like, man, that meal needs some salt. Or it's dark, I need some light. When we go into the world and we just point to Jesus, things begin to change. In Ephesus, in Ephesus, because of Paul and this church and their strategy, it would be changed forever. And so, Father, with that word, we just want to allow that to sink in.